My name is Penny Lacasso and I am the world's first happiness hacker. Imagine a world where human happiness and well-being drove our decision-making. A world where technology was used to amplify human potential rather than replace it. The Human First podcast is designed to encourage you to explore your curiosity about the future of humanity. Our conversations are focused on building skill in intentional adaptability, creating the foundation to positively influence the future for yourself, but also for others. Join me here each week as we put humans first. Brooke, welcome to the Human First podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I was extremely excited to speak uh, to you after reading uh, what I think is a fantastic book um, that you created called Slow. Thank you. And I thought, um, given uh, given the context of the book and the work that you do, a beautiful place to start um, would be to ask you to tell us who you are as a human being. What a great question. Uh... <laughs> I don't know if I'll be the first person to stumble at that, but um, as a human being, I mean, I'm I'm evolving. I'm definitely still changing and growing. But you know, the the basic building blocks of who I am. Uh, I'm a, I'm a writer. I'm an author. Uh, I'm a partner. I'm a mother of two children. We're ten and eight, uh, and I'm learning to become somebody who is trying to live mindfully in everything that I do. You know, the way that I parent, the way that I work the way that I interact with my community and my family. Um, I am very, very imperfectly embracing all of those things. Uh, and I think I'm also imperfectly embracing that that imperfection um, that I hold at my centre and have struggled with over, you know, the course of my life. But, yeah, I'm evolving. So I want to pick up on one point that you said there. You said that you're trying to be mindful in, in everything that you do, which I think is um, – it's hugely admirable, uh, but equally as someone who tries to do the same thing, I know how hard that can be. So I'm intrigued as to how you, how effective you think you are at doing that and also how do you keep yourself in check on it? Yeah, I think, I think it varies in terms of how effectively I am living mindfully. You know, I think there, uh, there's this, this idea of tilting that I really um, – stand firm on and it's really the antithesis of of balance you know I don't necessarily believe that day-to-day balance is achievable or even desirable because it keeps us feeling like we're doing everything at about 30 percent you know effectiveness parenting working uh you know whatever else the other moving parts in our lives are whereas this idea of tilting allows me to acknowledge that I'm going to tilt 100 percent into whatever it is that I need to do right now And because of that, I'm tilting 100% out of everything else. So that allows me to be much more mindful in whatever it is I'm doing. You know, having this conversation with you now means that I'm not paying attention to anything else. And that's, for me, that's a much more livable way of, of living mindfully than trying to, you know, look back at my day and say, well, did I approach everything mindfully at all times? Uh, no, you know, I didn't. So it's it's really been about, I guess, retraining myself as to what mindfulness looks like. Because, you know, for me, when I first discovered it, it was this capital B big idea that 
I felt like I was too stupid to understand. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I really did. I thought I was missing something. And then I realized that what I was doing was living mindlessly, you know, in everything I was doing. And, and mindfulness, as in its simplest term, is simply the opposite of that. So paying attention. Um, yeah. Which is challenging in a world that's designed to, to distract Absolutely. you. And um, there was a brilliant term that I have referred uh, to many times in your um, after reading your book, which I loved um, in the context of this thinking about balance and, you know, everyone's striving for balance, which to your point I feel is almost unachievable. Yeah. And you speak about um, a wobbly balance. Yes, I do. And again, that's something that I've had to retrain myself to be okay with, you know, having been brought up with this, this kind of ideal of work-life balance where somehow we, we strike this balance uh, and, and everything falls into place, you know, and, and it becomes effortless. In my experience, it becomes far more stressful the more we tried to give equal attention to everything, you know, at, at every at every moment, even throughout a day, even throughout a week you're not going to give everything equal attention. So for me, it's about understanding what my core is, you know, and, and in the book I talk about this, this analogy of wobbly balance while I'm standing on a slack line, you know, <laughs> trying to keep my flailing arms and legs still enough to stay up. Um, and the thing that helps me the most there and the thing that helps me the most in life is knowing what my core values are and sort of bringing everything else in, bringing everything into that core that needs to be there and being firm in those things. And then letting everything else kind of flail around as it as and when it needs to, knowing that over the course of six months, over the course of a year or two years, I will be able to look back and say, do I feel like I've been balanced over this six months, 12 months, two years? And mostly the answer is yes. And that's because I feel like, you know, I've figured out over the last eight or nine years what my core values are. And I've worked out ways of gradually moving them closer to the center of everything. Mm. So talk to us a little bit about what has got you curious at the moment. I'm feeling really <laughs> I'm feeling really curious about um community actually and and grassroots change and what that looks like. So I mean I've I've been podcasting for I think it's coming up to 4 or maybe even 5 years and over the the years my community has continued to talk more and more about craving community craving you know this connection with like-minded people and I think it's a wonderful concept but I'm still really curious to see and to learn more about what people see when they're talking about community I mean what is it are we looking for on the ground town hall type meetings are we looking for online communities are we looking for you know friends are we looking for a, a new version of family um I'm really curious about that. And it's something that I feel like I'm being drawn to, um, you know, to developing community, to taking part in it somehow. But uh, I think it's still something that I'm trying to grasp, you know, what is it that people see when they talk about community? What does community mean to you? Uh, to me, it means um, it's a sense of, of belonging. You know, it, I don't think it's tied to place. Uh, and I think that's one of the wonderful things that, modern technology has delivered us an ability to find our communities outside of location. You know, people who might look around at their friends and family and feel like there's no one else like-minded in, in some particular way can go online. They can go and find someone who, who shares similar values and feel 
in it together. And I think that's wonderful. So, um, you know, but I think there's also something even more essential to it than that. And possibly it's not only a sense of belonging, but also a feeling seen um, or heard in in community. Um, you know, it's not sort of gathering people around one voice. It's not necessarily following some kind of movement if the movement has a figurehead. It's sort of, it's it's more grassroots than that. Um, and it's, it's probably more human than that, I'd say. Yeah, which, I mean, it's fascinating. I have a similar curiosity and I think in the nature of um, the work that I've been doing, one of the thing, things that has fascinated me um, in the context of communities, obviously um, how important at the moment the human connection element of that seems to be. Mm. I totally agree with you in terms of the context of the internet is now, or you know, um, technology has now opened up this opportunity to connect with people that perhaps were not on your doorstep before um, that were interested in similar things. But what's been fascinating to me is when you create the space for people to talk about what's really going on in their lives at the moment and the things that, you know, that, are, um, that they're curious about, the things that are holding them back um, and those types of things, it's really amazing um, what kind of transpires in terms of the conversations that come out uh, and how people connect around this feeling of I'm not the only one that feels this yeah. way. Um, and, you know, a lot of the work that we do, um, I've been challenged as people saying, oh, well, why don't you take your programs fully online and, and, um, and you know, and scale it globally and blah, blah, blah. And um, I've been quite conscious or mindful in the fact that so much of the power of what we've created is actually in the human connection of that or the, the human element of building that community and I'm not saying it's the only way but I just think at the moment people seem really starved for that human connection. I agree 100% and it's something that I'm I mean I guess in addition to your initial question of what am I curious about that's something that I'm really starting to dig into. Uh, I run a, a slow experiment club <laughs> for people who listen to my podcast and essentially they run for, for three months and we did the first one that just finished, it's just wrapping up at the moment. And it was about um, social media. How do we slow our relationship with social media? And what we ended up kind of unpacking was what is it that we get from social media uh, and by extension, all these other, you know, optional technologies. And one of the biggest ones is, is connection. But what everyone undoubtedly found was that it is not nearly as fulfilling as face-to-face -face connection as human in-person connection I mean I think that it can be a complement to that particularly if there's something that you're super interested into in and, and no one that you know in your physical life is there with you uh, you know you go find that that group of people and that's your community centered on that but but connection with our neighbors and our friends and our family you know one of the the challenges I set people during the experiment was take one way that you connect with um, with someone, anyone using technology and take it offline, make it analog. What will that look like? And people did incredible things. I mean, one woman, um, she she made a, a like a book club with her mum, and they would read the same book. And her mum lived a distance away, but she would then call her uh, every you know Friday morning, and they'd have an hour long conversation about this book. And while it's not face to face, it is person to person, you know, and it's um, it was wonderful. And then another woman made a book club with, you know, mums from her, her kids' school. Uh, someone else set up a bi-monthly 
you know, dinner, sort of standing dinner date with friends. And it, it was really wonderful to see people recalibrate um, what connection meant for them. Because I think we're sold this idea so often that, you know, social media connects us deeply and intricately with each other. Uh, and it can, but it can also make us sort of, it, it doesn't necessarily make a, a true proxy for connection. No, and um, I don't know whether you've read it, but um, I recently read Digital Minimalism. Oh, by Cal Newport. Tom. No, I haven't read it yet, no. I love, so I'm a huge fan of his work and, um, you know, he talks a lot in that book about um, the default position now for so many people because of the way we've been unconsciously conditioned is to um, digitally connect rather than humanly yes. connect. And every, obviously, digital connection that you undertake comes at the cost of a human connection. And what I find fascinating about that is that we are impacting skills that we need for the mm. future by diminishing the amount of human connection that we undertake in our everyday. Um, and I talk a lot about this and we, we see the impacts of this in the next generation. Like you said, you've got children eight and 10. I've got a little boy who's eight. You know, the, the rate of anxiety and suicide in that next generation is beyond anything yeah. we've ever seen. You know, we've got a loneliness epidemic um, globally. And so much of that seems to be linked back to um, so much time spent on technology and not spend actually physically, humanly connecting with other people. Yeah. And human connection, you know, builds skills in having difficult conversations, um, you know, in problem solving, in resilience. And what we're seeing in the next generation now is because so much of their connection is done on technology, it's that these innately human skills that, you know, that we are born with are diminished because they're not practised in the same or at the same level that previous generations have practised. Yeah, them. right, exactly. Even something as simple as learning how to exist with someone who you disagree with is being lost, you know, in adults and children alike. I think it's so easy for us to develop our own echo chamber uh, online in terms of the, you know, the websites that we read or and frequent or the social media profiles that we follow and whether it is consciously or otherwise, we are developing a, a network of similarly minded people who convince us that we are right and the other is wrong because they are all saying the same thing. So they must be right. You know, and I think it's really interesting that we're sort of losing the ability to to have nuanced conversations and to understand that it's not just us versus them or, you know, um, red versus blue or whatever it may be. It's uh, it's. It's really interesting for me to watch, particularly as I have have stepped back from using uh, Twitter firstly and then Facebook um, to really acknowledge how easy it was for me to to stay in this little comfort zone of of sameness. Which is, and I love um, you're absolutely right. And you know, so many algorithms now on the likes of Google, etc., are designed to actually you know feed you information based on what you've yes. searched before, which further you know creates this concept more of a, a narrow cast rather than a broadcast in terms of what you're, you're exposed to from a knowledge perspective exactly it's almost challenge you know it's making it's not making us smarter it's potentially making us dumber because we're not as open to not so much the like minds it's the unlike minds and uh, you know constantly when I when I talk um, or you know deliver programs I sort of say to people you don't need to find more people like mm. you 
most powerful thing you can do is find people who actually challenge you to look at the world through a different lens, challenge you to actually consider what if what you believe is wrong. Yes. What would that look like? Exactly. You know, and it terrifies people. And I, I, I get it. You know, I do get it. It Being out of your comfort zone is uncomfortable by default, you know, but that's where growth happens. You know, I've never grown when I've been sitting in my little comfort zone. I grow when I'm challenged. I'm, I grow when I push out. I grow when someone says something to me that really does sit me down hard and say, oh, okay, all right, here's something I've never considered before. Um, and I, I think that that you're absolutely right. And it's, that's an, actually an interesting flip side to our conversation on community too, isn't it? You know, people are craving that like-minded connection and it's it's so important. But what is also important is that we don't stay there we expand, we become more open-minded. Yeah, and there was a brilliant book that I read recently called The Perils of Perception by a guy called Bobby Duffy. And, you know, he's globally a renowned researcher and he's done global research um, that actually validates the fact that we are wrong about so many commonly held beliefs. So it's it's basically a book that validates how wrong we are as human beings and the things that we believe, and it's all statistically based. So it just basically says, you know, we we think we we think we know it all, but the reality is we we know pretty much not much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think that's interesting though too because we're all uh, you know brought up, or at least a generation or two of us were brought up to fear failure, you know, and I guess being wrong on something is a in some people's minds, a form of failing. You know, I was wrong on that, so I've failed. Uh, so, I mean, do we do we stay stuck just so that we can convince ourselves that we are right? I don't know. Oh, gosh, no. I, I find the most, it's to, to your point about, you know, growth occurs in pain, the most magical things happen when you actually discover you're wrong. Oh, absolutely. I agree with you 100%. I'm just curious as to whether that's why so many of us stay comfortably stuck because it keeps us, um, you know, it keeps us from feeling like we've failed from, uh, you know, being wrong. Uh, so it's a kind of int- also sort of a an interesting extension of that is you know learning to fail and failing forward and failing proudly and uh, you know being okay with not knowing everything. Uh, saying I don't know is something that I had to learn as an adult. Yeah, oh, absolutely, and especially I mean I I came from a corporate background, so you know not um, not having the answers or you know is part of how you define your success. If you don't have the answers. Well, maybe I'm not as good as I as I think I am, um, and it's really interesting, you know, for me stepping out into the entrepreneurial space um, in the last five years from you know being you know quite successful in my executive career in a you know global company, I had to change my whole language around um, failure because I knew that I wouldn't be able to succeed if I didn't take some bigger risks and step into failure in a in a way um, that enabled me to grow and. It was really challenging because there's no way you'd ever talk about failing in the environment that I come from. Whereas, you know, my biggest growth and learning has come out of experimentation and testing and piloting new things, of which many have not worked out. Learning that's come in that and and the confidence of being able to step into fear and take bigger risks is what has then delivered the next big opportunity. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I wonder, is there room for that in... In, corp- in the corporate world, do you think is there room for that shift to happen or is it is the system so based on, um, you know, being risk averse and being certain and uh, secure that, that people won't embrace that? I don't, you know, I haven't really ever worked in the corporate sector at all. So um, I'm always curious about what shifts can happen and what could happen and what won't happen or, or may not happen. 
I think there is, I mean, I work with some of the biggest companies in the world. I work with, you know, people at junior levels and up to executive levels. I think there's definitely appetite for it. I think the problem is that people are so conditioned and the the current constructs um, are built around not failing. Yeah, so these large companies are built on managing risk as opposed to taking risk. Right. And so I think unless you shift um, the culture and the mindset of the organisation, it will be very hard to change. And having, you know, worked in change for over 20 years, you can't change culture overnight. So I think the appetite's there. I think it's definitely there um, in the next generation because I think people are seeing that the current um Current practices are not delivering the innovation that's required in order for these companies to be able to thrive in the future. So something has to fundamentally shift. Um, but I think that there is a lot of discomfort um, at the top of many of these organisations because it's not how things have been done in the past. Right. And as we said, you know, change is very uncomfortable. And yeah. uh, and some people are a bit, you know, scared to play in that space. So let me ask you what is it that you're concerned about in the context of the future? I'm honestly very concerned about the climate crisis. Um, as a mum of two kids, uh, our daughter, who is 10, is very aware uh, of, you know, the conversations around climate change and the impact it's going to have, not only on our country, but, but the entire world, um, environmentally and other ways. Uh, and... I've always been someone who, who environmental issues has been at the forefront, but I think it has shifted my perspective to one of, okay, how am I going to act? What are the changes that I personally am going to make as of today that can assure our kids that we are doing all we can, even if the government of the day is not or is or isn't doing as much as some of us would like, whatever the case may be, uh, even if organisations are or are not making changes, I can assure them at least that we are. So, um, you know, I think it's it's going to be a really interesting few years, actually, in um, Australia, but, but globally as well, to see how people who are in tune with this, this huge issue react. You know, is it, do we react with, um, you know, apathy by overwhelm? You know, we're overwhelmed with the, the enormity of the issue. So what do we do? I can't do anything. I'm going to stick my head in the sand. Or do we react with grassroots change you know and I think that was the other side of the whole community piece that I I spoke to at the beginning of our conversation um I'm really curious to see how that those those things come together um and I'm a big believer in grassroots change Mm -hmm. not waiting for top-down change um in an ideal world it would come from the bottom up and from the top down but at least in this instance we're going to make shifts ourselves you know, ourselves. It's such a fascinating area. Um, we spent a bit of time last year interviewing 80 kids across Melbourne and Sydney, asking them to complete the statement in the future. We know sort of caveat because we were very interested in what kids between the ages of 13 and, 15 and 17 had to say about how they perceived the future. And I also think we speak a lot about the future without the future in the room. Yes, which is a real problem from my perspective because these kids are extremely smart and they're dying for the platform to be heard. And the the number one topic that came out was they honestly believed that we were destroying the planet and that potentially in their lifetime we would destroy the planet. 
Yeah. Um, and I know, you know, it blew me away, but I think, you know, there's, I think that it's almost like um, there's so much conversation about it and it's a bit like, um, the, you know, the whole diversity conversation uh, as well. There's so much conversation about it, but the, the level of action just doesn't seem to be creating the impact that we need. And yes. I, I, as someone, again, in change, it fascinates me and I can't help but wonder because it's not impacting people in their everyday right now, you know, it's not at the point where... I can't do this because mm. what scares me um, is that until it's on people's doorsteps and it's actually negatively impacting their lives, how are we going to get them to change? People don't often change without a pain point. And um, I think that's what frightens me the most. It's like, how do you create that sense of urgency when it's not impacting so many people right, right now in a way that's visible to them or in a way that creates a discomfort? Right, exactly. You know, at the moment, any change required for people in developed nations is an inconvenience. You know, it, it really is. It's changing. It's requiring us to change in a way that most of us simply don't want to because it's inconvenient. It's, it's annoying. It might be slightly more expensive. It might be different to what they're used to. And you're absolutely right. I don't know how to shake people out of that other than to continue to direct them to stories of people who it is already impacting. I mean, the lower-lying Pacific Islands are already losing, literally losing land because of rising sea levels. Um, You know, we were up in the Yukon um, last year and talking to to local people about the impact that climate change has already had on the tundra and the the levels of snow and the the temperature. was it was not insignificant, you know, to stand at a glacier in in Canada and to see where it was 20 years ago. Uh, And it was this enormous, enormous thing. And then to stand there and look at it now where you could barely see it on the horizon. uh, That's in like that. You you cannot um, argue with that. But how do we shift that to, to, you know, our, our comfortable level of, of living so it, it really has become um an issue of, of privilege for me it's a privilege to be able to say well it doesn't impact me right now um and I don't know how we shake people out of that I really don't other than encouraging them to listen to the stories and take them seriously you know and I guess it goes back to uh you know your your point about the the human skills empathy would go a long way to 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 drawing us together with people who are already suffering from some of the, the effects, you know, to be able to empathize, to be able to really listen actively and then be empathetic would make a massive difference. Um, and yet maybe that's part of the reason why it's so difficult for us because some of us have lost that ability to empathize so deeply. Yeah. Empathy is not a, I would say for many of us is not, um, not a skill that's that's well practiced right and, i mean i just um just came back on sunday i took my eight-year-old son trekking through the himalayas oh wow and you know from an environmental perspective you know you, you're in one of the most magical places in the world i can't explain how unbelievable the environment is and yet here we are trekking through these remote villages you know with no transport other than mules and um you're blown away and yet you sort of walk behind the village and there's just garbage mm. everywhere yeah and there's, you know, all these all this rubbish um, on the trek on the way up, you know, and I'm just sitting there going, 
this is terrible. My Im- immediate assumption was, oh, it's all the uh, the tourists that are eating Mars bars and dropping their wrappers and things like that. And when you speak to the guides, it's actually not, it's the locals. Right. Um, and again, you know, there's still such a huge piece, especially, you know, we in the Western world, um, you know, we've, we've been educated around rubbish and things like that, but still, you know, um, in other parts of the world, there's still massive education around the impacts of, you know, plastic and leaving garbage everywhere. It yeah. just blew away. And not even just education, but also infrastructure. I mean, it, it's much easier for us to kind of say, well, I'm throwing it away, even though away isn't necessarily, like it's not a real place. <laughs> you know, it doesn't just disappear. It goes somewhere and we no longer see it. Whereas if you're in the Himalayas, if you're on an island in Thailand, you know, away is, is where's away? You know, where do you throw it away? There is no away. Um, so it, it's, yeah, it, it's such an overwhelming issue that for me, I think the only thing we can do is the things that we can do, you know, start small. I take my kids to the park and I spend half an hour picking up rubbish, um, you know, and more often than not, my kids will join me at some point. Uh, and that's something we can do, you know, changing the way that we live in our house and, you know, in our environment, that's something we can do. Doing what you did with your son, you know, taking him to an incredible place and introducing him to the wonders of nature. We protect what we love and we don't love what we don't know. So that's developing a relationship with nature that will probably hold him in, in a wonderful place to want to protect it as he grows up. They're all things that we can do. I mean, we can't stop the production of Mars bars overnight, you know, <laughs> but, but we can change things. Yeah. Yeah. Small change creates the courage and confidence to step into bigger change over time. It, well, exactly. Like yeah. What you can control, not what you can't. So I've got one more question for you because I'm conscious of, uh, of time. My last question for you is what one question do you wish people would ask you that they don't? Oh, wow. What a good one. Um, I wish that people would ask me about the realities of what slow living looks like more Um, because I think there's a huge assumption that people have when they hear about, you know, slow living or even hashtag slow living, which is a different thing altogether, that it is some kind of, uh, you know, utopian life that is unaccessible to the vast majority of people. It's only something that I can do because I'm self-employed or because my husband is now self-employed. Uh, and it's not, you know, it, it's really not. It's it's not this uh, sweeping change where we, you know, move to the country and start baking our own bread and wearing natural fibre clothing and, you know, wandering through the woods together as a family. <laughs> like it's It can be all of those things, but that's the assumption that slow living is. And it, it feels so very different to most people's day-to-day lives. Um, that they assume, oh, that's nice for you, but it's not going to work for me. I really wish people would ask me about the realities of it because essentially it is simply paying attention to what we do with our time and our energy and our space. And anyone can do that, no matter where they live, no matter how they live. Um, I think that would make an enormous shift. The message that came through so loudly for me was that slow living looks different for every single person. And so, as you say, you know, bringing mindfulness to that process is is really around working out what it looks like for you, and how you can int- integrate that into your your everyday, in this way to, that you talk about, you know, where you can tilt into different things rather than try and be perfect at everything, find yourself busy and burnt out and not doing anything well. So, um, 
I find it, like you say, I think the context of slow people, like, oh, it means that I have to slow my whole life down and that's not possible in the environment that I'm in. It's it's um, it's not the case at all from, from the work that I've read from you and also from, from many others. It's I think the biggest challenge we have is so many people don't even create the space to consider what it could look like. Exactly. And I think that's the biggest obstacle. You know, let's just take take a little bit of time every day to check in and to really get to get honest about what's important to us as individuals, not what's important to anyone else, but as us as individuals, you know, connect to our, our, our highest personal values and see how we feel about the life we're living. Are we living in alignment with those, even in some capacity, or are we not? And is that possibly why we are grasping and rushing and, and accumulating in order to try and fill that gap? I mean, maybe the way we fill the gap is, is by realigning. And, and filling that gap with our, our highest values and letting everything else fall where it may. I love it. And I think uh, the point that you pick up, you said how, how we feel. What's fascinating to me, again, with the work that I'm doing with thousands, is that I'm gobsmacked how often when we create the space for people to connect in with how they feel, how people don't know how they feel. Because they have not, like, again, they have not stopped and taken a breath um, or stepped away from the busy to actually consider that. People are so out of touch with how they feel. And if you don't know how you feel, how can you even be in tune with, you know, what makes you feel good, what doesn't make you feel good or what change it is that you want to make? Exactly. You know, this this idea. And, and I mean, I guess the other side of, of what I just said was that people may not even know what their values are. No. You know, um, we may we have moved so far away from what it is that lights us up, what it is that grounds us in, you know, the most important things in our lives. Uh, I went through that, you know, when I first discovered slow living, I realized that I was, I was not living a life in alignment with the things that were important. And then the follow-up question to that was, oh, okay, so what are those things that are important? You know, and I could kind of list one or two, but I had no idea, no clue. And that's terrifying, you know, to, to be an adult and say, well, who am I? <laughs> you know, what do I stand for? What is important to me? And coming up empty is really um very challenging and it's something that you need to work through there's no quick fix to that uh, but it is so worthwhile so worthwhile to to dig into that that discomfort and um and see you know see what you can excavate couldn't agree more thank you so much for your time today i just want to close out by getting you to share with us how can people find out about the amazing um, work that you're doing if you can share with us a little bit around the book and also i mean i know you've got your podcast which is fantastic uh, the, so the best place to find me online would be at slowyourhome.com. That's where you can find um, the podcast and links to my, my two books. So I've written a book called Destination Simple, which is more about uh, developing rituals to simplify your, your daily life and allow you to find some, maybe some five minutes every day to start to tap into this idea of slow. Uh, and then my second book, Slow, which came out in uh, 2017, is... A much more personal book that talks a lot about my journey and, um, you know, the the genesis of of this idea of slow living for me, and then what it looks like uh, as I live with it and evolve with it. And of course, my podcast, the Slow Home Podcast, is anywhere that you find uh, good podcasts. Fantastic! Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Penny. It's been awesome. Cheers. Thank you for joining us today on the Human First Podcast. If you loved your experience, 
please take a moment to leave a review on either iTunes or Stitcher and provide us with a rating. If you'd like to access the show notes or learn more about what we're up to in the context of humanising the future, jump on over to humanfirstpodcast.com. See you next week.